Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today we're joined by Thad Lee, an award-winning filmmaker who was born and raised in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Welcome, Thad. Hey, thank you, Sarah. Thanks so much for being here. So excited to have you on the show, and you're a fellowship artist this year, right? That's right. Thank you so much for that. We're, we're excited to have you on board this year and excited for our audiences to get a chance to learn even more about you. So let's start from the beginning. So you grew up in Mississippi. Will you tell us a little bit more about where you grew up and, and what that was like? Yeah, I was born in Hattiesburg and uh, went to Tim's Elementary and all the way through to Hattiesburg High. Just lived in a neighborhood with a lot of friends nearby. And, you know, Hattiesburg uh, is always in the back of my mind all the time. I've been there. My father passed away uh, a few weeks ago in in late October. So I've been there a lot and just kind of been retracing my steps through all the neighborhoods, just going through memories. And so... Uh, I miss it. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I live here now, and I'm glad I'm married, but I love being from Hattiesburg. That's awesome. So what was it like growing up in Hattiesburg? Was it um, the same as it is now? Has it changed a lot? I think Hattiesburg's changed a whole lot. Back when I grew up, uh, it seemed like uh, there, there was less space. Like it was more <clears throat> concentrated. I mean, there was a downtown, and there were the kind of suburbs where I grew up in, but there wasn't West Hattiesburg now. Like Cambridge was this really massive uh, lakefront neighborhood that was developed, and from when that, when that happened, probably when I was in junior high, everything, lots of people just started moving out there, and so the city really spread out, and so like uh, Hattiesburg High was where all my friends, every you know, there were two high schools, really three high schools, but there was two high schools. Now there's private schools and there's many high schools. And so Hattiesburg's just kind of gotten bigger and more sprawling. Uh, I, I don't know that west part of town. I don't, I don't go out there as much. Like the, one of the coolest parts of Hattiesburg recently is that downtown has really become alive again. Mm-hmm. Like when I grew up, my dad worked downtown and uh, we would go there for some things. But it really at night, there wasn't a lot going on. Like the, sh- the, the city kind of shut down at night. <clears throat> and then the... Uh, when I was in college, uh, there was a bar called the Thirsty Hippo, which opened downtown, and it really started people going downtown for nightlife. And now there's all sorts of things. Like when I am home, like my favorite, one of my favorite businesses now is Southern Prohibition Beer, and they've got a fantastic brewery, great sipping room, and that. And there's a the keg and barrel, and there's all kinds of just great public art down there right now. And there's T-Bone Records. Like Hattiesburg's really culturally like uh, I, I didn't there, there was probably all that there USM's there so there's obviously always been some really good culture if you want to go find it but just growing up in the neighborhoods like we, we, we didn't see, I, it wasn't a part of my life yeah and now when I go home I seek it out and it's so easy to find like Hattiesburg's really come on strong in a lot of ways and uh, it makes me proud 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was down there recently and just really impressed with the caliber of public art that they have, as well as the amount of public art that they have. And it's awesome that they're using mostly local artists. You know, they're not having to look outside of Hattiesburg, really. No, and the murals are so beautiful. It's amazing. So cool. So when you were growing up, did you, um, did you, were you into film at that point? Were, were you creating? What, what was your creative childhood like or, or not like? Like I was a big time player. Like I always was a daydreamer and mm-hmm. I, I played with toys way longer than any of my friends. I hit them when they would come over <laughs> and they would leave. I would play, you know, I was always a, a you know, I love make-believe. And uh, when I was like in junior high, I started writing poems and so poetry was my first real, my first real grasp at something abstract, and or maybe not even abstract, but my first real creative handle on anything was in poetry. I always loved words. I loved to rhyme, and so that really was a, and it still is a part of my life. But it was a major part of my, my stepping towards where I am now. And I remember when I was in eighth grade, I was in a biology class, and our teacher, Dr. Hughes, was a great teacher. And he didn't teach biology one day. He showed us his the movie he made with his college friends about this Bigfoot movie that they all made themselves like in the 70s. And, uh, you know, with camcorders and edited it themselves on just little whatever they had. And uh, that just stuck in the back of my mind that you could make, you know, you didn't, you know, you could make a your own little movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was in a class, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was in a class called Mississippi Writers, mm-hmm. and during the final part of the class, our teacher, great influence on me, Coach Mike Tebow, uh, just a, he was a great writing teacher. He also taught, taught creative writing, but he was a huge influence on my life, and he broke us up into groups of th- three to four to five, and he said, everyone pick a writer, and you need to do a special project about this writer. Whatever you want to do, just you need, you need to come up with a good presentation. And uh, I kind of swayed my group into doing a movie because I had a camcorder and one of the guys, Charlie Wally, his uncle was either an owner or part owner in Stewart's Cameras, which is still there. And they had an editing machine. And so we made a movie called Infatuation of Death of of Mississippi Writers. (laughs) It was all about... uh, we kind of got lost in the making of it. It was supposed to be be about William Faulkner's... uh, as I Lay Dying and Robert Canzanaries, The Harps of the Wind and John Little's, and John Little, uh, Wild Rabbits. And we were supposed to kind of do reports on each one. But it ended up being a wild movie about Choctaw Indians and <laughs> Confederate soldiers and, and uh, suicidal teens. That's <laughs> and it, I mean, it was just a big mess. And we misspelled infatuation in the titles. <laughs> but it was so much fun to make. And... Uh, you know, I still have a copy of it. I wrote an essay about the making of that. One day I need to get see if I can get that published because it was a funny story, just all the ins and outs of it. But that was the first real time I ever sat with somebody. Like we took the footage to them, and I sat with the guy the whole time. And every because we were the machines were expensive and they wouldn't let us touch them, so we had to have this college student touch all the buttons. But I sat there with him every second, and I was just fascinated with it. And uh, but I was terrified of the machines. And uh, and then, you know, I really was. I, I probably still am terrified of the machines, but back then I was really afraid of them, so I, I wouldn't have probably wanted to touch the editing machines anyway. 
<clears throat> and when I got to Ole Miss, they didn't have a film. Uh, they have a film program now, which mm-hmm. I'm really happy they do. But they didn't have one back then, and they just had a survey class. Mm. And Jack Barbera taught it. Wow, and that's I lo- pretty cool. Yeah, and I love Jack. I still keep up with Jack. And that was the first time I ever learned about terms like tracking shot and, you know, pan and wrap, you know, just, just uh, vertigo shot, just things, things that now they're just part of the filmatic language. But I was introduced to it by him. And, uh, but I was an English major and a philosophy major, so that was really the only time I, I had any access to film in that, those days was really just through theory. But I always took, uh, I had a little camcorder and I videoed all my friends and I was always taking pictures. Like, it was always part of my life, even when it was just part of uh, documenting who I was with and what we were doing. And then, uh, but I always want. I, I knew I wanted to, to be involved some way. So when I graduated from Ole Miss, uh, I scared my parents to death, and I told them, I mean, they had no idea. Like, I think the plan was for me to go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> and I told them that uh, I was going to move to Los Angeles and, and become an actor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> a little different plan. <laughs> oh, my grandmother was just off the charts, worried about cults and earthquakes, and had lots of talking tos. And oh my but luckily, a friend of mine lived out there, and she uh, she she runs a really great charity now called the Art of Elysium. Mm-hmm. Her name is Jennifer Howell, and she at that time she, her office was on the Universal lot, and she did a lot of work with Tom Shadiak, who did all the Jim Carrey movies and Nutty Professor movies, and so. Uh, my mom told me if I would just move close enough to where she lived, I could go because she could call her to come check on me. <laughs> so I moved to studio. Uh, I moved to the valley, to Sherman Oaks, which was not far from Studio City, and uh, ended up working at California Pizza Kitchen with a bunch of Mississippians who all live here in Oxford now. Wow! And uh, went to acting classes in Hollywood, and I started writing my own screenplays. And then I uh, had a typist, of course, because back then I didn't have a computer because I was scared of the machines. <laughs> <laughs> but every, you know, people like uh, people like the screenplays, but I really couldn't get past that threshold to get anything made. And so, in the summer of 2000, I, I uh, enrolled at NYU's uh, summer film workshop, which is like two years of school crammed into a summer. Wow. And and it was I was I lived in uh, the Greenwich Village on Washington Square Park. You know, it was a year before 9-11, so New York was really New York. It was like the best summer of my life, and uh, I learned so much. And so the next year, I moved back to Los Angeles. I was still living in Los Angeles, but I went back to L.A. a few months later and made my first short, Dinner with Huckleberry Sawyer. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So what was that like living um, in another state outside of Mississippi? Was that your first time? Yeah, it was. Like, I'd traveled before. Like, I, I was like, a, when I was in college, I was like a, a intern at Congress one summer. So I lived in Washington one summer, and I lived in Mexico one summer when I was trying to get my Spanish out of the way. <laughs> and, yeah. so, and so I'd been abroad a little bit, but that was the first time I'd ever really had an address somewhere else. And I love Los Angeles. Like, I, I really had, we had, the, had a great group of friends, and we just really made the most of kind of like just being nobodies, but really learning and having fun, but really getting out there. And I don't know if you ever see a movie called Swingers with Vince Vaughn and, and, and uh, John Farber, that's how you say his name? Yeah. I mean, that's very accurate. You watch that, and you're like, this is what it's like to be a nobody in LA. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that was us. <laughs> 
Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. And we are joined by Thad Lee today, talking about his filmmaking. Thanks so much again for being here, Thad. Thank you, Sarah. So we were talking about how you were in L.A. and you made your first short film. So what was that experience like? What happened after you made it? I, uh, I was ready to move home after that. Like, I'd been out in L.A. from 1990, the end of 96, and that was around 2002. And so uh, <clears throat> the next short film that I wrote was set in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at... I was planning on coming back here to make it. And so my friend Mike again and I and Reese Lau, who all, we all worked at the California Pizza Kitchen together, we all came home to make this movie. Wow. And Reese, Micah helped me produce it and Reese played the lead. And, um, and so we made this movie called October here around that time. And uh, Oxford was really, it was a new Oxford for me because when I was in undergrad, I was kind of like in the fraternity world and just kind of like, a, it was a different kind of existence. And this time we were coming back and we were casting and we were involved with the film community and the first ever Oxford Film Festival was just all getting off the ground. Oh, wow. And so like, uh, just by casting and asking around who, who you know, who can we get to do this? We, we just got connected like with Elaine Abity and the Arts Commission here. And they knew that we'd been out there and we'd at least been to other film festivals, you know, like at Sundance and Slamdance, maybe not had films there, but we'd been to them. So they said, come to all these meetings and just tell us, you know, what was the best things you saw? Like, what what were some things that we can try to strive for as a film festival? And so Micah and I were at all the the meetings and kind of helped guide them. And Micah ended up becoming a director of the festival for many years. And uh, and so... During that time, also one of the one of the things I learned from the first film was that because I was a little bit afraid of the machines, I really didn't know the technical side. Like the camera department, they had a, a very unique language, mm-hmm. and I didn't know it. And so, one thing that I wanted to improve upon was being able to communicate with the cameraman better. And so that year, while I was in pre-production for October, I took Millie Moorhead West. Her she took a black, she taught a black and white photography class here on campus, and I took the class audited it and we were in the dark rooms at night and it was so much fun and I learned so much and so for the next from then really until 2010 I was taking 35 millimeter black and white that was what I used for for taking photographs for for almost a decade but uh so we did the movie and the movie did well it won the first ever Oxford Film Festival that's awesome and it played at some other ones and and around that time of I kept I kept going back and forth to Hattiesburg, where I'm from, 
and uh, Carrie Hudson from Blue Mountain was living there at the time. And, uh, you know, he was in Blue Mountain. And when I was in college, Blue Mountain was like the biggest thing in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And when I lived out in Los Angeles, I loved Blue Mountain even more because it was a real connection to home. Like their songs really went deep to me. Whenever they'd come out there, they would play at this bar called The Mint in Hollywood. And we would all load up and go. And that would be the highlight of that of many months. And so uh, one day I was in Hattiesburg during Christmas and there was a bar downtown where Carrie was playing. And, and so I just started telling him what a huge fan I was. And I kept telling him, uh, you know, uh, I've got all this. Because when you make these, I, I shot those first two films on 16 millimeter and super 16 millimeter film. Uh-huh. And we didn't use all the films. We had some extra film and I didn't want to give it back, sell it back. So I had, I just had this film in a storage room. And I told Carrie, because it wasn't enough to make a really another film, but it was enough to make a music video. And so I said, uh, you know, let's pick a song off this album you're making. Let me make a music video for you. And he was like, sure. And it was uh, the, the song you just heard, What the Old Man Told Me. Wow. And uh, it was because of that, that, that video, that I met my wife. Because well, I didn't meet her then, but uh, we met on Valentine's Day that same year at a party for Susan Woodard. And... Uh, over the next couple of days, I was always thought she was just beautiful and sweet. I don't know what she thought about me. <laughs> but uh, the guy who shot that Carrie Hudson video, Kent Moorhead, was a great filmmaker from Oxford. He'd studied at NYU like in the 80s when the Coen brothers were there and Barry Sonnefield. So he, like, he was really a really good technical filmmaker. But like for the last decade, he had not been shooting film. He like, had like, a, a, you know, a digital camera like everybody, most everybody did. And so when I hired him, uh, it'd been a while since he actually shot actual film. And so he asked me if he could do some tests. So I had some 16 millimeter film left over from Huckleberry Sawyer and some Super 16 left over from October. And he wanted to use the 16 to do some tests. I had about three minutes left. And I hated the idea of, of burning this film on test. And yeah. so I said, let me just write a stupid little short film and let's just make a movie with it. And so I wrote like a two-page movie about these guys robbing liquor stores. And the guy I played had a girlfriend named Ruby Rain, and I was didn't know who she was going to be. And I saw Carlisle on the street in Oxford. She was leaving. Like she used to have a studio right on the square. And I saw her on the square, and I, I ran over to her. And uh, she was in the store. I just said, I've got this movie I'm making, and I need you to, if you'd like to be in it, I'd like for you to be this role. And she agreed to do it. And after we made the movie, I guess she had a good time. But I, I told her, I said, uh, I'm making this other music video tomorrow. And it's all about this, what the old man told me. Like there was a flashback scene where you see the boy. He's at his grandparents' lunch in the country. And it's a big southern lunch. I said, I need a meet and three for 12 people tomorrow. Can you do it? And she ended up doing it. Amazing. And it was fantastic because the camera... Uh, Kent didn't mean to, but he shorted out the camera, so we had some. We had like a two-hour camera delay, and I thought I was going to have a mutiny. But her food calmed everybody down, and we got it finished. And the music video came out really well. I was I was really pleased with it, and I still like looking at it today. That's so cool. That's awesome. So, did you stay in Mississippi after that? What was your um, life after I, those two films? I didn't. I uh, at that point, like I. I I felt like I could become a better writer 
and so I enrolled in, in uh, the University of New Orleans for their MFA in screenwriting. And so I moved to New Orleans shortly after those music, shortly after all that. And I stayed there for a cup, uh, three years. Katrina kind of put a, I was there during Katrina. So that, so for the, that six months to eight months, like UNO was, there was no UNO. Underwater, yeah. Yeah. And so luckily though, the university here, they took me in and, and Fisher, they let me take poetry classes here for that Sorry. semester. And, you know, Beth Ann Finley and, and, and Fisher, I, I've had them both in poetry classes and I'm so grateful to, to have been in their presence and just learn from them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just great, great writers and great people. And I owe them a huge debt. But uh, when that was over, I went back to New Orleans and I was trying to, I, I was all but finished with my MFA. All I had to do was defend it. And I got a call from Micah like in 2005 or six. And he was at Double Decker. He says, man, you're not going to believe it, man, but I'm on, I'm, a, I'm on the square in Blue Mountain. Blue Mountain is playing at Proud Larry's. You know, they had broken up for like 10 years. Wow. He says, I think they're back together. And he said, you, and I said, really? He goes, man, you should make a, a documentary about that. I said, I should. I said, let me call Carrie. And so uh, I, t- I called Carrie. I said, Are, is the band back together? He goes, yeah, man, we're going to make another record. And I said, uh, I'd love to document it. Can I can I make a, a film about it? He goes, well, you you know you need to come up here and meet Laurie Stewart and see what you know if this is something she would want to do. And so I came up and I met with them and I took some photographs at a show and just kind of talked to her about what I saw the vision of it, and she agreed. And so I moved up here just thinking that it was just going to be a year and I would go back and to New Orleans and finish my degree like after you know six months or something right. and it'd be no big deal and I just got lost up here like for like thir- like uh, until like that was 2006 uh, until 2013 I got a call from University of New Orleans I had like I shot Blue Mountain for six years wow that's incredible yeah. I didn't realize it was that long yes awesome. until they broke up again <laughs> so you saw the entire thing <laughs> I did, but, yes but I got a call from the University one of my advisors she said, you know, I don't know if you care or not, but, you know, you lose. Uh, she said, uh, after so many years, y- your, your credits start to, you, you, you lose your credits. Mm-hmm. And she said, you've already lost a year. Mm. And so, you know, she said, you were so close. Be, you need to come here and kind of stop the bleeding and get down here. And it took me another semester or two to get down there. But by the time I got down there, I'd lost two years. Oh, wow. And wow. so... Uh, I just decided just to suck it up and make it up. So I, I so I did two more. I did two more years of film school. Amazing. And I, I when I finished it up, uh, how are we doing on time? Good. Uh, so when we were finishing up that, I was working on my my thesis and that. It was about a six year old boy uh, who didn't want to go to school. Who ended up having he was going into the first grade and it was all about a boy who didn't want to go to school mm-hmm. and just his kind of uh, being pulled into time. Uh, he kind of got his wish. There was a big school strike, but it was because of something his father had done. And he met this girl that he really liked, and so now he was separated from her. So it was a bad thing at that point. Mm-hmm. So now he had to get back to her. And so uh, he had to help try to stop the strike the best he could. Awesome. And so, uh, but as I was finishing that and I was getting ready to defend the thesis, I would take little breaks and I would drive out to Metairie sometimes. And they had a Barnes & Noble there that had sales in the Criterion Collection 
And so I would go out there and buy three or four movies for half off and come home and just kind of binge when I wasn't uh, writing. And uh, one day I was just looking at the magazine rack and there was a magazine called The Complete, I believe The Complete Works of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. Like all the adaptations on film and on television. Mm -hmm. And so I got it just to kind of just mind, just to have something just to kind of take my mind off things. Yeah. And I was reading, they had, you know, little stories about each big movie. And when I got to the Shawshank Redemption, it talked about how, uh, I never say his name right, but Frank Darabont, or however you say his name. Uh, great writer, great filmmaker. But anyway, he got his start doing this thing called a dollar baby, which is something that Stephen King offers to film students that uh, they have a chance to adapt one of his short stories for one dollar. But the catch is you can only show it publicly for a year and you can't sell it. Mm. And uh, I just thought that was very generous and interesting. Yeah. And there was something really uh, weird about it. It's like a challenge. It was. Yeah. yeah. And I had like, I was still, this was like three weeks. Uh, I was still technically a student only for two or three more weeks. Mm. And so Thanksgiving night uh, or the night before Thanksgiving, I'd just gone to my parents' house and I found the website and how you submit and you have every year you have a different selection of short stories to choose from and I never read any of his prose and so I didn't know they just had like a little two page sentence of each one and I didn't want to make a horror movie and they had one that said something like uh, man checks into a Motel 6 in Nebraska during a blizzard to make sense of his life I'm like well I can do that (laughs) 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 and and, uh, little did I know that uh you know, it was it was all about a suicide, and uh, or a man contemplating suicide, wow. and so when I got the rights to it, I ended up, you know, they said be prepared. It may take two months to get the rights. Mm-hmm. I heard back like two days later, and I got it, and I felt wow. good about that. And so I went ahead with it, and uh, my friend Reese, who played the guy, not the, the first, he moved back with me in two thousand three. I, I pulled him out of his day job, and he played the salesman. And uh, we filmed it over a summer and a winter, the following winter, because the guy was supposed to be seven years aged, and I wanted Reese to kind of get out of shape and <laughs> be <awesome>. pasty. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, we finished it. We the it first screened, I think it was like February twenty second of twenty twenty. And so I had that. So I had one year after that day to show it publicly. And then COVID happened like in oh, March. No. And so I, I couldn't believe, uh, you know, because I mean, it's a showcase film and you're, you're, you do it because people will see it because of his name. Right. And they'll see what you did with his material. Mm-hmm. And so when COVID happened, I was like, oh, no, I'm like, I'm, I'm in the hole because it costs a lot of money to make it. Sure. Even if it's not just a short film, it's expensive. Right. And uh, I was worried that I wouldn't have any way to to, to show it at all. But luckily, there were so many festivals that went virtual, Great. including the Oxford Film Festival, mm-hmm. but lots of them. And it made it into 47, and it won uh, at least some honor at 29 of them. That's incredible. Yeah, it was a good run. That's awesome. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast... I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. 
Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. We are chatting with Thad Lee today and talking about his short film that aired during COVID. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit more about what that was like. I mean, it ended up working out. You got into lots of uh, virtual shows. It was bizarre, but in some ways, you know, because it was virtual, it, uh, it probably reached so many more people than it would have otherwise because, you you know, uh, you didn't have to be in that town. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was open, like, you could have watched, like, all the film festivals that made it into in California. You know, you you could buy the ticket here and watch it here. That's great. And so probably in the end, you know, uh, it, it probably got seen by a lot more people than it would have, had other, would have otherwise, but... You didn't get that when you make a film. It's, it's, it's you know it's huge to be able to see it on a, on a big screen and watch it with an audience. Mm-hmm. I had that one, uh, the Magnolia Film Festival in Starkville. Mm-hmm. It played there, and that was like one or two weeks before the lockdown happened. Wow. So that was the only time I saw the live audience, and that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It was great. Just a, it was great just to be in the room with with the, with the film and, and with people. Mm-hmm. And the Oxford Film Festival, although they went virtual. That summer, they played like winners and select films in a summer drive-in over there at a car dealership's parking lot, and they put up a big screen, and so you, and you could tune into a radio station, and they would have the audio coming from it. That's cool. So I got to see it at a drive-in, so that was pretty cool. That's really neat. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about um, what you were working on after this past year, I guess. I got, uh, uh, well, believe it or not... Uh, there are two documentaries I'm working on. One is still the Blue Mountain documentary. Still going on. It's still going on. And believe, <laughs> they, they they just they played uh they played three they they got back together this year after 2013 was the last time I had filmed them. Yeah. At the uh, the Hill Country Picnic, which is a great Kenny Brown puts it on, and that was their last show in 2013, and this is the 30th year of Dog Days. Or of, of their founding, and so they they played three shows. They played one, uh, one in Hattiesburg, one at Proud Larry's, mm-hmm. and one in Alabama. And I filmed the one in Alabama, and also filmed a uh, vignette. Like the way the film works is, it'll be like a little vignette, either the interview or them doing something. Like I've I've had a theme of photographers in it. I've had Jane Rule Burdine when we were out at Joshua Tree. I had her. Uh, I filmed a photo shoot of her taking pictures of them in the desert, a Joshua tree. And then when we were in New Orleans, I filmed uh, Dick Waterman, the great, all kind of, he's a producer, manager, but also just one of the all-time great rock photographers. He, uh, I hired him just to shoot Blue Mountain all over the city. And, And so this time I had taken with my Mac Fellowship money, some of that money, there is a tintype photographer in Water Valley named Michael Foster mm. who takes these beautiful tintypes. And uh, I've always wanted to do a Western, a daydream about what, making a Western. And, and so I was always wondered, like, what, 
what's something I could do with a Western that hadn't been done yet? And I thought about like just the, back in those days, they had 10 type photographers like Billy the Kid, all those guys, their portraits are like that. And I thought maybe I could tell a Western <laughs> and the main character be a 10 type photographer. Mm-hmm. And so before I wrote, would write that script, I would need to know what his process was and what he would deal with and the materials he would have to deal with. And so, uh, because Michael Foster, everything that he uses today, they would have had access to in 1880. Mm-hmm. And so I took his class over the weekend, and I dragged Carlisle with me, and she uh, and she was our uh, model for all of our pictures, and uh, I just loved it. And so when it was over, I asked him if uh, he would take Blue Mountain's portrait for a, a possible uh, DVD cover for the documentary, and he said sure, and that he was actually going to be at this show they were playing at in Alabama as a vendor. And so that really, I knew I was going to shoot one of those three shows, and I have like six shows at Proud Larry's I've shot. So I, I don't think I'll go back there more than two or three times just to get change of scenery. Right. And so that really made my decision easier about where to go, even though it was harder to, to you know get there and you don't have access to your camera people, and, and it was a much more lean shoot. But it was a new setting and great energy, and I loved watching them ha- sit there and have to take this tintype picture together. That's and, cool. Yeah, and, and so it won't, you know, hopefully it'll be a, a, a cover. It'll definitely make it in the film, but I know the vignette's going to be strong. That's great. And so uh, so we had that. And the other documentary I'm working on is a uh, documentary about Maudie and Landon Clay. Very Maudie's, cool. Do you, you know them, right? Yes. Incredible photographers. They, they had an incredible retrospective of both their careers at the University Museum two years ago. And uh, it was around the time that Carla and I were getting married. And uh, they asked, they had seen some of the films I'd made of Carlisle's exhibitions, her gallery shows, showing her in the studio. And uh, they want to take this show on the road. And so they, they, they just called and they said, you know, we need a video. They wanted to show it to other museums as just a way to say, this is what we have. You know, we want to bring this show to your museum if you, if you want it. And so I, I went with them and I was trying to figure out, because, you know, with Carlisle's work, I, have her in the, I shoot her in the studio. And so a lot of the films are about her making the art. And there is also some of the exhibition in there, but it was a lot of her, it's a lot of process. Mm-hmm which is really interesting. And uh, I was wondering how I was, was I just going to shoot the museum? How was I going to do it? So they had a walkthrough with uh, the public. And I went there with them just to see what they would say. And they were so smart and interesting. And every picture had this amazing story. And not only that, but their influences were so strong. And it was like just listening to them talk about every photograph was like getting a history of photography class. And so I just said, you know, we need to just treat, you know, you need to do this. We'll come back and do it in a day and we'll just pick selected photographs and you just tell me the story behind them and it'll be different than what you wanted, but it'll be, it'll be interesting and better. And, 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 uh, they agreed to it. And we were there at the university museum, like the day before the exhibit closed, we shot like from 10 AM to three or 4 AM. Wow. We were all worn out. That's amazing. The light went bad on us, but we got it done. And I'm still working on that. Like uh, we've had a lot this year to go on, and so I've had to take a little break from it. But and 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 you know, this year I'm going to finish both those two films. 
And uh, when it's done, it's really going to be just so educational. Like, I really hope that uh, I hope that photographers will, will have a chance to see it and just listen to them because I, I learned so much editing that movie. That's great, yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And they're just so interesting. Mm-hmm. And they're great storytellers. And uh, I, I just really like them so much, and, and uh, I'm grateful for that. And, and, you know, when I think about this year, this year has been, uh, for me, about I had my first exhibit of photography that went up today. Yay, that's so awesome. Yeah. it Congrats. was. Thank you. It was with my wife, Carlisle. It's, it is a, uh, what would be, it's not a joint, it's, it's a collaborative, a collaborative exhibition. And it's called Murmurations. And it's about the places we both go to together uh, and the work we make of those places. And, and for me, it's, it's photographs, so it's real time. So, And for her, it's not real time, it's, it's later. And it's an impression of that place. Or we'll take some vegetation for that place and she'll draw it. But hers comes, mine, mine happen in, in real time and her comes hers comes later. But... You know, there's there's a horse farm in Holly Springs where she rides every Wednesday. And uh, one day she came home and she said, you wouldn't believe this pasture. They have uh, Edgar, who is the, one of the groundskeepers, just amazing person with horses and with dogs and with, with plants and anything. Just an all, all around miracle kind of person. He had gotten all these wildflower seeds and he had planted a whole pasture. And she said, there's this pasture that is nothing but cosmos and mostly zinnias, which is her like special flower. And she said, you need to come see it. And so I went there with my camera and I made four laps around it. And at first I'm really just trying to get just the scale of the sea of flowers. Yeah. And by the fourth lap, I really just kept getting deeper and deeper into it. And by the end of it, my hands just in, into it. I'm shooting up. I'm not even seeing what I'm shooting. But I'm getting, like, I'm pulling back, and you're looking at it, and once you find, like, there's, okay, there's some good things over there, and I like, let's see if we can get this focus right, but you're shooting through things. Mm -hmm. And so I started really shooting abstract nature, where there's something in the distance that's in focus, but in the foreground, you really have just all these kind of blobs, and all this saturated color, and just this, these interesting shapes, and it really, uh, it was kind of a breakthrough for me, because I've been taking these these uh, light paintings since 2010 mm-hmm. when I was working uh, like I said at that time I was still taking 35 millimeter black and white and I was uh, an actor in a werewolf movie called Night of the Loot Grew that Reese was in and Micah was directing and we were shooting it in my cabin in Taylor and they asked me if I would take pictures of it and so Carlisle at that time she was in the art department at Ole Miss and she had a little Canon Rebel and I said, can I borrow your camp camera to take stills at night of this werewolf movie for their, you know, just so they can use later? Yeah. And I'd never had a digital camera before. And I was just amazed at just being able to take a picture and look at it instantly. <laughs> right. And I was just fascinated. <laughs> but even more than that, just what happens like when, you know, because uh, I wasn't, there was no flash. Mm-hmm. And just what happened to the image when my hand moved accidentally and just the distortion I would see. And just so I would just they would be off shooting a scene and I would find some light somewhere and I would just be playing with just these shapes that the light would create. And so I've always, since 2010, I've been making those. And so 
there's a wall of those. We have a salon-style wall of those moon paintings. So it's the first time. There are some in homes. It was the first time they've been exhibited. Oh, I've been wow. working on them for 11 years, so it's interesting to see those up, too. That's amazing. And that's at Southside Gallery mm-hmm. in Oxford. That's very cool. Well, congratulations on that. That's going to be really exciting to see both of y'all's work together. It's, 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 it's wonderful just to be in there with it. And, and uh, like I said, these are these places that we go to together. And, and we've been married a little bit over two years. And uh, most of the work has come from the last three years. When I was living here, when I, you know, when I finished uh, graduate school, I moved back hoping that I could marry her and, and get my career back on track and, and get healthy. And I just wanted a life with her. Mm-hmm. And, and when I walk through the gallery, I just think about all the good things that have happened since 2019 and all these places that mean so much to us and, and, and how we feed off that and how we, I don't know, like we, we really push each other and help each other. But uh, I don't know if I inspire her, but she she really inspires me, and she's been a great lesson, like not lesson, but she's she went first, you know. That's we, awesome. Like she asked Will if we could do this show, and he said yes, and so it's my first exhibition. But she really going through it, you know. She's yeah, had like uh, eleven years of photographs to choose from, wow. and she's like, you know, you don't need to pick your best photographs. Let's come up with a show that's really coherent mm-hmm. and she really helped me kind of think about that because she's had so many shows and so much experience with it that I really appreciated her just saying let's focus on these places we've been to together that's awesome. and I love birds and I always stop whenever I see murmurations and I take pictures of the birds and so that became that was it that's so cool yes and there's there are two portraits of murmurations in the show we had to have some birds oh, good. That's great. So was it was it hard to select? Yes. Work? Yes. How long did it take you? I until like I took the last pictures like three weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's we were in Memphis, and Memphis is one of our places. Like she, she has a great relationship with David Lust Gallery in Memphis, and so we're there a lot. And her, uh, she has a great framer there, David's frames, and so, and she always we always like to go to the Dixon. Uh, the museum we, yeah it was one of the places we thought about getting married and so uh, that's one of our places and we were there after we had we were supposed to be done we went there just to kind of walk through and whenever we're in Memphis and we have time we go there and just walk the galleries and walk the just the grounds mm-hmm. and it was a beautiful fall day and I just had my camera with me and we got like four pictures that day that made it into the show that's so awesome yeah yeah you just never know where it will come from you know and, and that's one thing Maudie taught me like listening to her she said that one thing I teach I tell every young photographer and they say what do you how do I be a photographer she says have your camera with you yes absolutely <laughs> one story she told me that I couldn't put into the film because it didn't fit uh, beautifully, gracefully into a spot, but she told me that the worst mistake she ever made was not taking her camera to a party that Jill Stein had in New York when she was working for Vogue. And because wow. Jill said there's gonna be a lot of celebrities here and they don't want paparazzi and all that kind of nonsense, so don't bring your camera. And she said, out of respect to Jill, she didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And there's like Warren Beatty walking by and all these people. Then all of a sudden, she's sitting and down. And right in front of her are Tennessee Williams. It was a birthday party for him, speaking to Truman Capote. Wow. And they're just locked into this really intense conversation. And she said, if only I had my camera. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so ever since then, she says, I don't leave home without it. That's a great, great 
great piece of advice for anyone that's yeah. interested in photography or just in documenting life in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now everybody has an iPhone, so now that's you can do true. it. That's true. Well, thank you, Thad. Thanks so much for um, being on our show today, and we're so glad you're a fellowship artist this year. Thank you, and we're so proud of you and your career. Well, uh, we're just so happy that you're back in Mississippi. Thank you. And we hope to see more of you. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app.